You're listening to the Coastal Church Audio Podcast with Pastor Dave Koop. We're talking about Michael and the Dancing King today. Michael lived a privileged life as a young girl growing up. She's the daughter of King Saul. Her daddy's the king. And, uh, but tragically, she misses her dream coming to pass because she picks up what we call a critical spirit. And as a result of it, we're one of the saddest verses in the Bible we're going to get to. Her dad, as I mentioned, is a king. The land had been ruled by judges, and then her dad was the first king to be picked. God had set up a system of judges. The people came to God and said, God, we want a king. And so they said, okay, I'll give you a king. And they get King Saul. Saul starts off pretty good, but through his life, he drifts further and further away from God. And as he does that, his life begins, begins to unravel. Michael is his youngest daughter. And uh, we pick up the story when she asks to be married to the best-looking guy in the country who is everybody's talking about, his picture's on the cover of all the newspapers, and uh, she asks her dad, I want to be married to that guy. That guy's David. David's the shepherd, as you know his story. Remember, he's the guy who killed Goliath. He's, he's an amazing character. In the Bible, it just says very clearly that he was very attractive. He's a handsome guy, good-looking fella. He's got a lot of things going for him, David. He's, one, he's a rancher. He takes care of sheep, so he knows how to farm. He's a really good fighter because we know that he killed a lion and a bear. I don't know too many people that have killed a lion and a bear without a rifle. This, he killed a lion and a bear without a rifle. So he must be pretty strong and quick and all the rest of it to do that. He's a great military individual. He, uh, not only does he kill Goliath, but after he kills Goliath, King Saul says, I want you to come fight on my team. I'm going to recruit you to be a leader over these soldiers. And what a great job he does as a captain. He rises up in the ranks of the army. And uh, the report goes out that Saul has killed thousands. But David, the ladies begin to sing, has killed 10,000. That starts a jealousy in Saul that would haunt him for years. But this is David, and this is a guy she wants to marry. He's also a poet. He, he writes poems. He's, he, he plays an instrument. He, he's musical. He becomes a great politician. So he's brilliant in so many different ways. David is just off the charts. He's an, he's an amazing achiever. And Michael's saying, I want to marry that guy. That would be kind of like... Some lady saying, I want to marry the captain of the Canucks. He's single, he's good looking, he scored the most goals, everybody's talking about him, he's on the front of the newspaper, he's on the back of the newspaper, I really want to marry that guy. And that's Michael. She's a young girl saying, man, daddy, I want to marry Michael. Can you set this up? Now, she may have heard this already, but when David went out and killed Goliath, the king had said, whoever takes care of this problem for me, I'm going to give him my daughter's hand in marriage. I won't charge his family any taxes, and there's going to be a great reward for him. So that was part of the deal, and David, as a result of it, marries Michael. Saul says, you can have my daughter in marriage. Saul, as I mentioned, is pretty jealous towards David. So what he does, he says, you can have... My daughter's had in marriage, but you're a, you're a shepherd. You don't have any money. You don't have much of a dowry. So here's the deal. What you have to do is you'll have to go and take care of a hundred of the enemy. The enemies were the Philistines. I want you to go wipe out a hundred of the enemy and uh, bring back some proof that you have 
killed a hundred of them. Now, you can read for yourself what the proof is. It's very interesting proof, but you need to, you need to, that's just for you to encourage you to read this week. So it's just a little bit of anticipation. If you, if you're laughing, you know what the, you know what the, what the proof was. So, but he goes out, he doesn't take just a hundred soldiers. He takes out 200 soldiers and he comes back and Saul's actually surprised that he didn't get killed in the battle. He was hoping that he would die in that battle and then it would be over with. He wouldn't have to worry about this uh, rising star that was threatening him. But David comes back and Michael becomes his wife. David continues to be very jealous of, I mean, Saul continues to be very jealous of David to the point that he tries to kill him on a, top, a couple of different occasions. He does it by throwing a spear at him. David was... As I mentioned, a great musician, he would play the harp to help calm Saul. Saul became very troubled, tormented by an evil spirit. And as David would minister on the harp, on the instruments, it would help Saul calm down. But he, in his frustration, and his rage of jealousy, he tries to kill David. David runs, of course, and he ends up going back home, closes the door, and his wife is there, Michael. And she says, you know what, my, my dad's really after you. You need to escape. And he says, how am I going to escape? And so Michael helps him out of the house, lowers him down, through the window, and, uh, and after she's got him away, she takes a, an idol that they had in the house, she puts it under the covers, and she puts some goat hair there for, to pretend that David is hiding under the bed or sleeping in the bed. Soldiers come in, they say, where's David? You know, he's sick, he's in the bed, and, they, and she tricks him, gives David enough time to hit the road and escape. Saul, as you can imagine, her dad is not impressed. He's upset with Michael. He's, he's a mixed up man at this point, pretty confused, very jealous, and he goes into a rage. And here's Michael, this intriguing woman. She's caught in this. Remember, she's, she's royalty, and she's married the man of her dreams, this hero of the land, and she's helped him escape. She's really risked her life in front of her dad to do this, and he's gone. And now David is on the run for about four or five years. He's literally living in caves. Saul's tracking him down. number of times Saul gets really close to kill him. And David both times spares Saul's life. He could have killed Saul, but he, he doesn't want to, what he says, touch God's anointed. I respect the office he's in, and I'm not going to take his life. Even though the soldiers encourage David to kill Saul, he doesn't do it. Saul's chasing him for a number of years. Saul, Michael's dad, she gets to see this, that her dad continues to drift further and further from God. As he does, his life begins to unwind. The kingdom becomes less and less profitable. profitable. And as a result, here's now uh, Saul. In his last battle, he, he, he's losing against the enemies, and he tragically... Her dad and her brother die, her father committing suicide, her brother killed in battle. So she's gone through a lot of emotional stuff, this lady. She's married to this guy, he's gone, and her dad dies in battle, her brother dies in battle. And to make it worse for Michael, when her husband's been gone, Michael's, I mean, David's been gone, her dad says, you know what, he, he's gone, and uh, you're going to marry another man. And so she has to marry another man. I don't know all the details. The, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail on it, but she ends up marrying another guy. 
Maybe she thought David would never come back. Maybe it was her father saying, you have to marry this man. We're not sure on that. But nonetheless, she's married to another guy. David's out of her life for all those years. David begins to win the battles. God's hands on his life. It was prophesied that he'd be king. And he comes back and he starts his kingdom, starts ruling on the southern part of the country. Meanwhile, in the northern part of the country, Saul's son is ruling there. There's a civil war now between the two. And David ends up becoming king over the whole land. And part of the negotiations was that he wanted his wife back. And so he tells them, I'm going to rule the whole land, but what I want, I want my wife back. I want Michael back. And so now Michael is torn from this, her second husband, and she's brought back to David. So can you just appreciate some of the challenges that Michael has been through? So we, we realize that she has got a lot of, no doubt, emotional baggage as she's brought back to David to live with this new king. David comes to Jerusalem and he takes that city and he says, okay, this is going to be the capital of the land. Now, the first thing David says I'm going to do is I'm going to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. Somebody asked me last night after the service, well, where is the Ark of the Covenant? I want to go see the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. I don't think anybody really knows. Apparently, there's a church in Ethiopia that might have it, but we don't know that for sure. They're not showing it to anybody, but it's, historically, they say it's there. Somebody else has buried over here. I think God's not showing us where it is because we'd end up worshiping the Ark of the Covenant, and so that's probably a good thing we don't know where it is. In the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. It came with, along with Moses, the Ten Commandments, and so forth, and they had that as their presence. It was God's presence with the people. Today, after Christ raised, was raised from the dead, where the ark was kept, the, the curtain was torn in two, and now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells and lives in us. We are the temple, Paul says, of the Holy Spirit. But in that day, that ark was really important and it represented that God is with the people. Saul, in all that he did, had not brought that there yet. He was, as I said, he, was, he had drifted away from God. But the first thing David does, he says, we have to get that ark back here. I'm king now, I can do this, and this is our capital, so I am going to bring this ark into Jerusalem. I'm going to set that up. I'm going to make sure this journey takes place. It's been gone for about 60 years, and David's going to bring it back. And so he, he gets this procession together, and they, they go there, and it's held in enemy territory, and then it was brought to somebody else's home, and so now he's going to bring it from their home back into Jerusalem. Folks, this was a big, big deal. Would you look at your neighbor and just say, this is a big deal. Now, let me help explain to you how big a deal it is. I learned a few weeks ago that it's not when, if the Canucks win the Stanley Cup, it's when they win the Stanley Cup, okay? So when they win the Stanley Cup, what are we going to do? We're going to have a parade in the city, right? We're right down here at Georgia Street, there'll probably be a parade. And, uh, and can you imagine we're bringing the Stanley Cup to Vancouver? Wouldn't that be something? And, and there would be a lot of cheering, a lot of, you know, a lot of flags, and there would be a lot of celebration. People would be shouting, and, and people would be clapping, and people would be dancing 
saying, yay, we're bringing the Stanley Cup. We have got the Holy Grail of Canada finally in Vancouver, you know. People kiss the Stanley Cup. And, I mean, they just, they, they almost worship the Stanley Cup. Well, that would, be on a, that would be one on the scale. Bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem would be like a thousand on the scale. Okay, this is... This is not some trophy for getting a puck in the net. This is the presence of God coming into the capital of, uh, of Israel, into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There will be a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem is God's city. It's the city of Zion. It's the place. And this is David on those early years. And he's saying, we must bring God's presence into here. So, folks, this was a big, big, big deal. Bigger than a Stanley Cup victory parade. This was way above that. This is eternal. And David is right on the forefront of this. He gets his, his soldiers out there. He's got a band. He's got a, he's got a big barbecue planned afterwards. Everybody's going to be celebrating. The whole city turns out for this. And David is super, super excited to come into the city. He's got people that are dancing and shouting. And he's in the front of this thing. Now, we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Would you say with me this morning, thank you, Lord, for the book of 2 Samuel. We're there. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 14, and we're going to read what happens here as they come into Jerusalem. Verse 14, then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. That's important. That means he wasn't wearing his kingly robe. He doesn't have his king's robe on. He's got like a track suit on, okay? So he's dressed more like a commoner than he is in his royal outfit, okay? So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with what? Shouting and the sa- with the sound of the trumpet. Folks, it's loud. There's dancing. There's, there's a lot of noise going on. This is a huge, huge celebration. And David's in the middle of it, dancing before the Lord. Verse 16, now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, so we're picking up on Michael's story again, remember? She'd been brought back to her husband, she's gone through a lot of stuff, and Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So let's look at David first of all. He's coming back, and he's king. And he's in front of this parade, and he's leaping, <laughs> and he's whirling. He's doing 360s, okay? And he's we- leaping and whirling, and you're, you're thinking, man, what an undignified preacher. <laughs> <laughs> and she's thinking, what an undignified king. Why is he doing that? He's undignified. He should be the king. Dun, da, da, dun, da, da, da. But he's not doing that. Because he's not doing it for the people. This isn't for his wife. This isn't for the people. This is for God. And he's abandoning himself before God. He doesn't care what you think. This is not for you. This is for the Lord. This is not David the king. This is not David the husband. This is not David the father. This is not David the rancher. This is not David the poet, the musician. This is David, a child of God. God, I'm just worshiping you. Could care less what they think. I'm so glad we're bringing your presence to our city. David, abandoned before the Lord, surrendered 100%. Yeah. And she's looking from the window, and she goes, oh, David, oh, oh, you embarrass me. I'm royalty. 
You remember you married into our family? You were the shepherd and I was the daughter of the king and you married here. Now you're acting like such a commoner. David, come on. My goodness, you're embarrassing me. Is that your husband? <laughs> she's, she's, she's embarrassed. She's, let's read on. This is Michael looking out of the window. She sees David. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the men and the women, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Can you see what David did? He said, man... This is it. This is, it doesn't get any bigger than this. And so we're going to celebrate. We're pulling out all the stops. This is the biggest barbecue we've ever had in the land. Everybody gets a piece of meat. Everybody gets a bread. Everybody gets some raisins. That's like, I mean, that was it. That was big. I told you it was really big. Would the Canucks feed everybody after the parade? I don't think so. They'd say, we're glad you came in and supported. Sign up for your membership next year and buy another T-shirt. This, no, this is, David's just like giving it all away. This is, God's good to us and everybody is enjoying this great celebration. And David blesses the people. His whole heart is, you have to see how good God is. God has been great to me. He's a good God. He's reunited our land. And David wants to establish God's presence. Very clear, by bringing the ark into Jerusalem. So he's blessed the people. Now, David, uh, verse 20, returned to bless his household. The people have been blessed. How many of you know that you can have a really good day at work and you can have a really good day on the tennis court, but when you come home, if it's not good at home, it just kind of nullifies everything else. Because you need to be encouraged at home, whether it be by your husband, by your wife, by your dad, by your mom. But if, if you've done really good at school, you felt like, man, I finally pulled myself up from a C to a B, and you come home and your dad says, we're the A's. I mean, it just kind of sucks the wind right out of it. It's like, oh, man, I thought I really tried. Home is really a place we need to be encouraged if there ever was a place. So I think David's kind of expecting that. I mean, this is it. This is one of the best days of his life. He's not on the back end of his career. This is at the, one of the heights of his careers, and he's celebrating God. When I get to heaven, I'm going to thank David for that. I respect somebody who, at the pinnacle of their career, is not ashamed to celebrate God. It's something, you know, you, you sometimes watch somebody, they're a, they're a sports hero or they're a, a, music, a musician of some kind, a business person, and, and, uh, and they have a great career, but they, they keep the fact that they're Christian on the DL, on the down low. You know, it's like, and then after their career's over, after they finish, they come out kind of almost out of the closet. Oh, yeah, I've been a Christian the whole time. I really admire people who in the height of their career say, by the way, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's Lord of my life. And they're, they're not ashamed to worship God and to go full blast for God, even while they're enjoying great success in whatever they do. This is our, our, our David here in this story. Now he comes in verse 20. Are you still with me? Okay. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. So here's Michael. Remember, she was looking out the window and she despised him. What is she going to say to David? I wish I could have her voice inflection, but we'll do our best. How glorious was the king of Israel today? 
She really didn't mean that. I mean, oh, that's a big, a big dig. How glorious was the king of Israel today? Uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. You're acting like nothing but a commoner, David. This is her one sentence. David responds, it was before the Lord. It wasn't before you, Michael. It wasn't for the people. I did that for the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to point me, ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. I'm going to play music. I don't have a problem doing this. I'm going to play music before the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by whom I will be held in honor. Now, we're coming to one of the saddest verses in the Bible, okay? So look at verse 23. Therefore, whenever you see a therefore, you have to find out what it's there for. Therefore, what's it there for? It's there because of what Michael has done. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Whew. Her womb dried up. I don't know if it was just because her reproductive system stopped working or if it was because David said, honey, whatever intimacy we had after that, it's over. It might have been the latter. It might have been just David saying, you know what, I really don't have any desire to be sleeping with you and you're going to be living here in the house, but it's going to be one lonely life for you. And uh, what a, for a woman, especially that day, that culture, to not have any children, that was a sad thing. Here's Michael, born in royalty, lots of privilege. Why does she end up in verse 23 like this? I put forward to you that she had a critical spirit. And if we have a critical spirit today in our lives, the same thing happens. There's a proverb that says, to guard our heart with all diligence, for out of the heart flow the issues of life. Your heart is like a spiritual wound. In John chapter 7, verse 38, our Lord said, He who believes on me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. He was speaking of the Holy Spirit to come, that out of our heart. Now that heart is also translated, literally in the Greek, it's the word womb. Out of your womb will flow rivers of living water. We have a heart that's designed to produce life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. But it is possible when a critical spirit gets hold of us that that spiritual womb dries up. And the destiny, the calling, the purpose that you have for your life never gets fulfilled because you've allowed a critical spirit to get hold of your life. Michael, who had all these great things going for her, had caught a critical spirit and it affected her destiny. So there's a strong warning for us from this intriguing woman of Michael. Let's look at a couple of differences between a discerning spirit and a critical spirit. We wanna be certain we're of the right spirit. Can you say a good amen? amen. At one time, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. She, he had sent his disciples. He said, go ahead and get a hotel for me and a place to meet. And, and the disciples went ahead of him. And when they went ahead of him, they found out that nobody wanted to have Jesus in their hotel. And so they got kind of ticked off. They went to another hotel. They said, no, we don't want Jesus in his crowd, too controversial. And finally, nobody took, nobody wanted to book Jesus into their hotel. 
And so they came back and told this to Jesus. And, and they, you know, their response to Jesus was, do you want us to call fire down from heaven? Let's burn up these suckers. Let's burn them up because none of them want us. Jesus turns and he rebukes the disciples. He says to them, you guys, you don't know what spirit you're of. I did not come to destroy people. I came to save people. That's the spirit we're of. Now, the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So if we are accusing and have a critical spirit, whose camp does that put us in? Puts us in the enemy's camp. And if you're in the enemy's camp, you live under that umbrella. Or you can put yourself in God's camp and say, no, I'm going to be of the spirit of a blesser. I'm going to choose to bless people. I mean, anybody can see something wrong in everybody. Or you can purposely, no, I'm going to see what's good in this thing. It's easy to have a critical spirit. It's easy to find something wrong. You could find something wrong in the service today if you want to. You can probably find a lot of things wrong. Or you could find a lot of things that are good. It's what kind of eyes you look with. Do you look with critical eyes? Do you have critical glasses on? Or do you have discerning glasses on? I was listening to a preacher one time, and he talked about this guy who came up after the service. He had tattoos all over his body. He had two tattoos on his face, had tattoos on his arms, tattoos on his fingers. He was tattooed to the nines. He had tattoos everywhere. And then his girlfriend that was with him, she had about 100 piercings on her face alone. She just had all kinds of piercings. He thought, oh, you know, what are they into? And he, is, he said, I caught myself. I, I was looking with critical eyes at these people. And then the Lord, no, no, that's not the eyes that I have. Look on their heart. He said, I, I, so I said, I said, okay, and put away those glasses. I'm going to look with a discerning heart. He said, I found out they're amazing people. They were beautiful people. They'd written a song about one of the sermons I'd preached. They put it on their album. He was a lead singer for a, a heavy metal band. And he was so grateful that he could have been in church that day. So easy to pick up critical eyes, isn't it? And we want to purposely to put on a discerning spirit. So let's look at the difference. A discerning spirit. It protects rather than destroys. It sends a warning signal, not a warring signal. I mean, know that Michael had sent a warring signal. She was picking a fight if there ever was. A warning signal. Sometimes we have to warn people gently. If a child's going to cross the street, we'll say it loudly, but we're warning them. We purpose to build up the other person, not to tear them down. We choose a time and location to talk, a good time. We administer corrective counsel like the scalpel of a surgeon. We restore and rebuild someone in an atmosphere of acceptance and empathy. We want to be secure in God's grace. We want to get the log out of our own eye before we try to criticize somebody for the speck in their eye. Here's two great verses in your notes from Paul. Galatians 6.1. This is out of the Message Bible. Live creatively, friends. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. Isn't that a good verse? Now look at this one, Ephesians chapter 4, 31 and 32. Get rid of all bitterness. All bitterness means all bitterness. Get rid of all rage, all anger, all harsh words and slander. Slander is when you talk evil about somebody and you don't know the whole story. You slander somebody. And all types of malicious behavior. How many of that covers just about everything right there in that verse? And he says, get rid of it all. Now, whose, ball, whose court is that ball in? That, that ball is in our court. It's up to us to do that. You and I have to get rid of that. Your life group leader can't get rid of it. Your dad can't get rid of it. Your mom can't get rid of it. Your pastor can't get rid of it. We have to get rid of all types of this. Get it out of our lives. 
Then it goes on to say, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. This would be a great verse to read out loud together. Would you do that? Let's read this verse. It's there in your notes out loud together. You ready? Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of malicious behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Wow. That's where we want to be. Now, the critical spirit, just to highlight some things about it, it's an obsessive attitude, criticism, fault-finding. It watches from a distance, aloof and judgmental. That's Michael. She's watching from a distance. No, she was not in the parade. She was not there dancing and shouting with the rest of us. She's standing back there in her little window, and she's judging it. You know, Jesus said, the way you judge us is the way you're going to be judged. One thing about the critical spirit, it has a boomerang effect. When you throw it out there, guess what? It's coming back. It's going to hit you right between the eyes. It comes back to you. What you sow, you reap. You have a critical spirit to others, it comes back to hit you. Now, here we read that uh, Michael was watching from a distance. She wasn't there. I found something out over the years that people who come to, for example, Saturday morning to pray, or people that are praying for the church, they're not critical of the church. Because they're involved. They're, they're, they're up to their knees in the, in the muck and the mire and helping make things work. You know, those that were, when we ran Celebrate Recovery and we're running a new program come fall, and uh, those that are involved and working or helping, there's nothing critical about it because, man, we're just trying to make this thing happen. Or pick any other department. You could be, you know, we've had people say, oh, you know, the washroom wasn't quite clean or this or that, but that never comes to the people that are serving on the team because they're, they're in there doing it. They're not standing aloof. They're, they're in it doing it. Most criticism comes from people that are standing back there like an armchair quarterback. When I watch the Canucks game, I'll say, oh, come on, Luongo, you should have had that. Come on, get the blocker out. Come on. Man, stop skating behind the net. Stay in the net. It's your own fault that goal went in. You know what I'm... But the hockey players aren't saying that. They're not, because they're not standing aloof. They're, they're there in the game, and they, they get it. And when, when, I think sometimes we need to just say, wait a minute, I haven't walked in their shoes. I haven't been through what they've been through. I haven't, I'm, I'm standing at a distance. I don't really know all that went on. So much better not to live with that kind of a spirit in life. Tears down, doesn't rebuild, speaks without thinking or reflecting, doesn't apply the same level of scrutiny to itself as it does to others. That's the critical spirit. So how do we avoid that? Here's a couple of quick points and we're going to wrap it up. Fathers, number one, know how important it is to provide your family with a proper perception of faith, marriage, and masculinity. I think... Michael is still responsible for her actions, but she was no doubt affected by her daddy. And as fathers, there's really an important role we play for our daughters and our sons that they have a healthy perspective on, on marriage, family, and even the way we talk about others. Somebody mentioned after the last service that their father was, had a really critical spirit, always criticizing this and that. And one day they'd lived with their, for a season they lived with their grandmother. They said, wait a minute, grandma's talking like my dad talks. I don't want that. 
I'm going to change that. You know, you don't have to carry it forward another generation. You can cut it off. You say, that critical spirit, I will not be of that. I'm going to choose to speak love, blessing, encouragement, speak words of life, not words of death over other people. So fathers play an important role of it. Uh, be secure in your own walk with God. If we're secure, if we know we're forgiven, we're secure in our walk with God, we don't have to worry about pulling others down to our level, being critical of them, because Christ has lifted us up, we can lift others up. Does that make sense? But if we're not secure in our own walk with God, then we tend to be critical of others. When people have a critical spirit, it is also an indication that their walk with God is not secure. Uh, criticism comes out of a root of bitterness. It comes out of jealousy. All those things that need to be uprooted. Hebrews 12, 15 says, if you don't take care of that root of bitterness, it not only poisons your life, but it poisons other people's life. And we saw that in, in Saul. Now we see it in Michael. And we see the barrenness in her life because that root was never taken care of. Uh, we need to grow with the changes in life and celebrate the success of others. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, somebody starts a company and uh, they're in the same business that you are in. And you've been in business for maybe four or five years and they start a business and you say, yeah, way to go. I'm cheering you on, man. Get her going, man. This is a great business. I hope you do well with it. And, and you know, they do pretty good the first year. The next year they catch up to you. You go, ooh, man, you, you really got a hang of that. You're doing pretty good. And then two years later, they've done good. They multiplied, multiplied three. Five years later, they're multimillionaires and you're going, Man, I wonder what they did. Yeah, I bet they, they probably cheated on their income tax, and I don't think they're playing their employees right. <laughs> you, were, you celebrated when they started, but once they started having great success, all of a sudden you became critical of it. We can cheer on the person. We can weep with those who weep, but sometimes it's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice. But we need to do both. Number four, respect the office God has ordained. David clearly respected the office of Saul. You can read that. The scriptures are there. It was King David that was dancing. That was not just her husband. That was her king. And she disrespected the office that her husband was in. Number five, remember the laws of sowing and reaping will work for you or against you. Number six, no matter how much success you achieve, keep heartfelt worship to God the top priority. We've watched this over the years. Some of young comes to God. They're so excited. Yeah, man, I'm worshiping God. I'm excited about this. They go to university. They get their degree. They get their master's degree. They start the company. They become the president of the company. They come to church. Oh, bless the Lord. Praise his name. Yes. I got a couple of employees that come here. I don't want to get too excited. I'm now, after all, I'm, I'm the mayor. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm now have a position. Don't want to get too radical. You might think about me. David, he's king. He's, his soldiers that he worked with, I mean, they were, he had amazing soldiers. The best. Guys that would go into a pit and kill a lion by themselves on a snowy day. He's talking about the man's man. And what's he doing? He's out there whirling and dancing before God. There's a lot of men today that, I'm not going to get too radical. What are the other men going to think about me? David was abandoned in worship. I don't care what you think about me. I'm very secure in who I am. I was worshiping God when I was a shepherd boy, and I'm worshiping God when I'm the king of the country. Some things are not going to change. I made music then. I'm making music now. I'm going to keep worshiping God radically no matter what I accomplish in life. Saluting you, King David. Way to go. You're an example for all of us. Number seven, don't judge or dampen someone's desire to worship. 
We can go to church and say, who do they think they are? Raising their hands, dancing, kneeling. Or it could be, why don't they get into it? They must not have the much love as I do for God. So avoid that critical, judgmental stuff. Amen? We don't want to be where Michael was. She picked that up and it dried up her spiritual womb. Number eight, keep your mind renewed to God's word. Put downs, making fun of, criticism, sarcasm are the world's way of reacting to the faults of people. Our thinking and our attitude should be a reflection of God's word. Can you say a good amen? Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to download free notes from this message, then visit our website, www.coastalchurch.org.